Good morning, church. How are we all feeling today? Good. Good. It's good to see you all here today. Anybody need a Bible? If you need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hand so you can follow along just right there beside you, Chris. Don't be shy about it. We only make fun of you when you're not around for not bringing it. I'm just kidding. But we're going to get into the Word of God today, so uh, if you have a Bible or you're following along in your uh, phone, Bible, iPad, Bible, whatever it may be, let's turn to the book of Haggai, which we will finish today, chapter 2. We're going to look at the chapter in its entirety uh, in a message that I have entitled, The Best is Yet to Come. And so with that, let's uh, take our hearts and turn them toward the Lord. Father, we thank you so much just for gathering us together today. Lord, we thank you that none of us are here by coincidence or happenstance, but that you have ordained from before the foundations of the earth that we would be here today, that you might move and minister and speak to our hearts and change our lives. And so to that end, we pray, God, that you would speak by the power of your spirit and that the seed of your word would find fertile soil in our hearts and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody say, amen. amen. You know, to get God's people up and going is certainly a commendable task. Uh, to keep God's people up and going is on another level altogether. And, you know, it's been said that there's only one ability that God is truly looking for in us, and that is availability. And perhaps we should consider that or recognize that beyond that, uh, the greatest ability that one could possess is dependability. You know, the last time we were together studying chapter one, we looked at a whole litany of excuses that we too often make as a justification or as a rationalization as to why it is that even though we see the need, we personally are too busy or for some reason unable to be the one to meet the need. But as the chapter came to a close, we saw something wonderful take place as the prophet of God had hit the people of God with an accusation of procrastination. The fact that they had plenty of time to work on their own homes, but as for the house of God, well, it just wasn't time for that. Their priority was to pursue their own creature comforts. And guys, while it's not wrong to appreciate or even pursue things that make life more enjoyable, there's something amiss when we have no heart for God's work, and no zeal to see his kingdom increase, and we content ourselves with the bare essentials as it pertains to ministry but we spare no expense when it comes to our own luxuries. Our heart shouldn't be to please ourselves, and if we can please God here and there along the way, well, that's enough, you see, but no, rather our priority should be upon the things that please God, and trusting that he will bless our obedience, and that his grace is sufficient to supply all that we need and beyond. And so Haggai, you remember the, the short of chapter one was uh, stop making excuses, uh, consider your ways, and, and serve the Lord. And so Haggai uh, told them there to consider their ways. That is, think about what road they had set their heart on and the direction that that was taking them down. You see, is that really the road that you want to be on? 
And it was time to set their personal wants aside and pursue the priorities of the Lord. And that's exactly what they did. They obeyed the Lord. They feared the Lord. And they began to work on the house of the Lord. And so as the curtain is drawn back now on chapter 2, the stage is set approximately one month later. So let's turn our attention to chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. We read in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 1 comes to a close on the 24th day of the 6th month. That would be September to you and me. Chapter 2 opens, notice, on the 21st day of the 7th month, that is uh, uh, October, and already they're being confronted with, they're being conflicted by discouragement, you see, although they'd been taken into captivity, that is the, the nation of Judah there, had been taken into captivity some 85 years prior to this point, the total decimation of Jerusalem came in waves through the Babylonian invasion. Some were taken into captivity in about 605 BC. The second wave came and was taken into Babylon around 597 B.C., and the final wave was taken in 587 B.C., and that is when the temple was destroyed. You say, well, what are you, why are you telling me this? Well, because it, would, it had been some 66, maybe 67 years prior to this point of which we're reading right now. So there would have been some who returned, who went into captivity, the third wave, right? Uh, wave three of captivity going into Babylon, who came back to Jerusalem, who had seen uh, the temple. Now, granted, they would have been in their 70s, perhaps even their 80s, but they had seen Solomon's temple with their eyes. They remembered how ornate it was, how elaborate it was. All the gold, all the silver, meticulous craftsmanship that was on display for all to behold. It was an architectural wonder upon which no expense was spared. And so now the prophet comes to them. He presents a series of, of three questions here for them. He says, who among you saw this house in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? You see, some of the older folks were polluting the environment through negativity. Listen to me. Negative comments, disgruntled and disillusioned attitudes are toxic. The same thing had happened 14 years earlier when they laid the foundation. Perhaps you recall last time when I told you that by the second month of the second year of their return, the foundation of the temple was laid. They had begun well, and the people shouted for joy. They sang, they gave thanks and praise to God for the work that was being done. Yet at the same time, Ezra, who was contemporary, who was there on the scene, you see, he tells us, but many of the priests and Levites 
and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple wept aloud with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. You see, there was this this mixed bag of emotions, the sounds of singing and sobbing intermingling, excitement and wailing over the same work, Why? Well, it's rooted in this one word found in verse 3. If you're a note taker, an underliner, you might want to somehow draw attention to it. It's the word comparison. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was now missing. The craftsmen were fewer. The economy was weaker. Architecturally speaking, this temple was almost an embarrassment compared to the previous temple that Solomon had built. And they had fallen prey to the familiar snare. They were stuck thinking of the grandeur of the past, the grandeur of the temple in the past, rather than the glory of God in moving forward. Listen to me. Rarely, if ever, Do these kinds of comparisons between the good old days and the present day yield anything fruitful or beneficial? How fruitful was it for all the old timers to weep and to wail and to bring everyone down comparing Solomon's temple to their own work of rebuilding? And guys, it doesn't have to be old timers. You know, I mean, we all know too well, don't we, how to throw a wet blanket of criticism over the celebration of a work of God in our midst because we perceive it to be small or insignificant compared to something else. There's nothing that will diminish and discourage the zeal of the workers like shrinking the significance of what they're doing and pointing out something really great in some other place or at some other time. We err, Paul said, to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Listen, God's not stuck in the past. He's always looking forward to what's to come. And it's dangerous for you and me when we get stuck in the way things used to be. Or to always be looking back. Jesus warned against looking back, man. We're to grab hold of the plow and press forward. Paul the apostle said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do notice, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a reason that God has grabbed hold of your life today. And we're to lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of us. We're to be moving forward rather than floundering in the past, you see. Getting stuck in the past is how we become old wineskins, right? Matthew chapter 9 and verses 16 and 17. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. They burst. They break. They're not good. They can't flex. The Lord is wanting to do something new, something fresh. Oh, it may stretch us. 
We may need to flex. And we'll be willing to do that if we're focused on the glory of God moving forward rather than getting stuck in the grandeur of the past. What's the takeaway? Keep your focus on forward momentum. Okay? Grab hold of the plow and don't look back. Now, in verse 4, we read, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So notice my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Notice, be strong, be strong, be strong, and work, right? For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, do not fear. Uh, Translation, don't let others who may be disgruntled, who may be disillusioned, discourage or diminish the work of God in and through your life. Be strong and work. This kind of harkens back to what we were speaking about there in chapter one, if you remember right, if you were with us. It's not that we don't need to, to pray over the work, but you know, sometimes people prefer to pray rather than work, you know? But rarely will something great get done apart from getting to work. God has chosen to partner with his people and accomplishments occur through action, you see. Be strong and work. I'm reminded of the days of Nehemiah when so much got done, you know, the wall built in just 50 short days. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. They wanted to get stuff done to the glory of God, you see. And I love that God gives his people a foundation to stand on. He doesn't just give us pious platitudes. He doesn't just spin out some common cliche as though, you know, we're trying to uh, hold on to or uh, grasp hold of the wind, you see. Listen, when someone tells you to be strong or someone tells you, hey, hang in there, what's the word What's that word of encouragement really resting on? You know, be strong. Things will turn around. Well, that sounds good. But, you know, is there any real substance to it? In other words, how can you know things will turn around? I mean, you can't. I mean, listen, the hard truth is it may go from bad to worse until we see Jesus face to face. So I really can't give you genuine encouragement through the words, hey, things will get better. I mean, oh, ultimately, I mean, eternally, yes. But currently, presently, what I can tell you as my brother or my sister in Christ is, hey, be strong. Hang in there. Listen, the Lord is with you. You see that? You see, God told them, not only what to do, that is to be strong and to work, but he told them how 
that is, what the source of their strength would be and why they were to do it. For I am with you. You see that? Be strong and work, says the Lord, for I am with you. In the New Testament vernacular, we read it like this. Finally, my brethren, notice, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Keep going, keep growing, keep plowing forward, for God is with you. Uh, Hebrews chapter three, verses five and six, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may notice boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you have the promise of God's presence with you. Think about that. It's guaranteed by his unchanging word. We read it, it's right in front of our eyes. So my spirit remains among you. Uh, The idea is that not only will God never abandon his own, but as we've said before, if God calls you, he will equip you. If he enlists you, he will enable you. He is with you. As as God said through Zechariah to these same people, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that all sounds great, doesn't it? It's grand and glorious, truly, it is. However, you and I have yet one more distinct advantage than even did these people who were resting upon these promises. As for you and me, not only is the spirit of God with you, but through the new covenant, he dwells in you. And he rests in power upon you. And I'm just telling you, better to be a part of a, what some might consider small, or deem insignificant work whereby God is with us than have some enormous work where he is not. You see what I'm saying? He is with you. Now look at verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, notice, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. You see... God is continuing to set their sights on on what's ahead of them. I am going to do this. I'm going to do this. He's setting their sights on what's in front of them rather than allowing them to focus on what's left behind them, you see. Uh, He assures them the best is yet to come, right? The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Now, 
In verse 6, we find uh, this verse quoted in the New Testament, actually Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. And by that, we discover that God is giving us another glimpse through Haggai of the coming judgment that precedes the millennial kingdom, where God will shake the present order of this world in his coming day of judgment. But listen, not only will things be shaken up eventually, that is prophetically, you see, but even historically as well, there was application. We see in verse 7, he says, I will shake the nations. The Persian Empire, of which they were under, would be conquered by the Greeks. The Grecian Empire would be conquered by the Romans. God would shake the nations, and he says, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, some may not agree with me here, but personally, I believe this phrase desire of all nations, is a direct reference to none other than Jesus Christ, the Savior not only of Israel, but of all the world. Only Jesus Christ truly satisfies the deepest need, the deepest desire in the heart of all mankind. Family, understand, and I know that you do, that there is a universal void in the heart of every man. A, we call it a God-shaped vacuum. And people try to fill it with all kinds of things, you know, power and pleasure and money and fame, and you know, the list goes on and on, ad infinitum, right? As they say, different strokes for different folks. But nothing ever fills the void. It's all a temporary fix on what would appear to be a permanent problem. And that's because God has placed that void, that vacuum there as sort of a, like a homing device. It sets us in motion. It starts us seeking uh, for answers and, and to search for fulfillment. And nothing ever truly satisfies till we come to know Jesus Christ. He truly is the desire of all nations. It's in him that we find fulfillment. Now, by the way, knowing that Jesus is what every human heart truly, ultimately, is searching for, that should inspire you and me, you see, with greater boldness as it pertains to sharing the gospel. You know, that unbeliever that you're talking to, he doesn't really know it, she may not be able to put her finger on it, but Christ is what is lacking in their life. Their desire isn't truly satisfied in the things of this world, and you and me, again, we have the answer. In Jesus, the desire of all nations. God says, I will fill this temple with glory. So, in truth... In verse 6 and 7 and verse 9, we have reference to both the first and the second coming of Christ. Solomon's temple had the Shekinah, the the Kabod, uh, the glory of God, the manifest glory of his presence. But this temple that they were building that on this day, you see, would house God himself in the flesh. 
our creator, Jesus, would be in this place, touching hearts, changing lives, teaching the word of God, bringing healing and wholeness. Remember John chapter one and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, notice, glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the glory that Jesus would bring into this temple truly was greater than any glory that belonged to Solomon's temple. And again, looking down the prophetic pipeline, God says in verse 9, and in this place, in, in reference to Jerusalem, you see, I will give peace as the prince of peace rules and reigns for a thousand years. Guys, it, you don't have to be a, a historical or a, you know, a buff or you know, an expert in, in history to recognize that Jerusalem has historically been a place of unrest. Uh, there's been no peace. But God promises that the city of peace will be granted its peace when the desire of all nations is upon the throne. And in verse eight, God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. In other words, this, guys, this is a not so subtle reminder that God is the one who put the ore in the earth, okay? The idea here is that if he wanted this elaborate temple filled with gold and, and silver, uh, the idea is that he could take care of that. There'd be no problem with that. They didn't need to be discouraged if they didn't have the money for the building project. It was theirs to boldly trust God who owns every resource and just give generously and willfully to honor God, to give him glory, you see. Listen, let me just say this and then we'll move on. When we truly trust God, we will give more generously, not less. Okay, If we truly believe that God owns every resource and we truly believe that he will provide for our needs, then there's no fear in honoring him with our first fruits and beyond. We want to see God glorified. We want to see his kingdom moving forward. We want to see the gospel going forth, disciples being made, more people being reached. We want to be the very best stewards of the things that he's entrusted to us to the very best of our ability. And God owns every resource. And listen to me, the hard truth is the way that we give demonstrates in no small measure, our ability to truly trust him to provide for our lives as we place our priority upon his kingdom. I'll just leave that there. You just think that through. Now, in verse 10, we read that on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priest concerning the law saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, well, if one who is unclean because 
of a dead body touches any of these? Will it become unclean? And so the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Okay, quick question by show of hands. How many of you know that it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong heart? Come on, okay. Truly, I mean, honestly, in vulnerability, that transparently would be an every hand in the building kind of a, a right answer. Uh, a, a wrong heart will spoil an otherwise righteous or holy work. And by the way, you'll note that Haggai's prophecies, you remember the last one was in the seventh month, and now this one is in the ninth month. When you read Zechariah, you'll note you'll discover that the word of the Lord came to him in the eighth month. And so they are ministering in conjunction uh, with one another. But Haggai asked this, and maybe we might call it a second series of questions, to the priest now regarding ritual or ceremonial cleanness as to the nature of transmission. Okay, So think, think that through. Any meat that was offered on the altar, he's talking here about, uh, you know, uh, he's having a discussion with them concerning the law, okay? And he goes to them, really, it was just kind of a series of rhetorical questions for them, but he's painting a picture, he's going to draw a principle and make a point, okay? And he goes to them and, and he says, listen, because any meat that was offered on the altar was considered holy, and the priests were appointed a certain portion of that and their families as well to eat. And that's why he's talking about putting it in the fold of their garment, taking it home to eat with their family. And so the question comes up, if you're taking this holy meat home in the fold of your garment and along the way, you know, it brushes up against another piece of meat or a piece of bread or some oil, whatever, will that piece of bread that it touched, you know, will that suddenly become holy? And, you know, the, the answer, of course, is, well, no. I mean, just if I've got, you know, this uh, holy article in my hand, and this, believe me, is anything but holy. I'm not trying to say that it is. And I, I lay it on the old pulpit here. Does the pulpit suddenly become holy? He says, well, no. Um, but by the same token, if one who is unclean, you know, maybe they've touched a dead body or something. Maybe you're out working with your buddy in the heat of the day and they have a stroke in the noonday sun or they have a heart attack, they die. You've got to take them back and this and that. And now you're unclean ceremonially, legally, you see, but yet, you know, and you grab a hold of something, some meat or some bread or whatever, and you're all unclean. Does that become unclean? And the answer is, well, yeah, you've defiled it. So in a ceremonial sense, okay, holiness cannot be transferred but impurity can. Uncleanness is communicated through contact. Guys, we see the same thing today, don't we? Let's just say for the sake of example that you're sick. You know, you've got the, the flu, maybe a cold, whatever. And I come up and I shake your hand. Well, uh, can you catch my wellness? My... my uh, Healthiness? No. Can I catch your sickness? Yeah, absolutely. You know, unclean water will contaminate pure water. 
but clean water won't cleanse contaminated water. So transmission really only goes one way. Are you following me? It goes from clean to unclean. And that's what God is trying to remind them of here in verse 14. Just because they're serving and sacrificing for the Lord doesn't make them clean. Just being in Jerusalem and building the temple doesn't make them holy. You know, today we might say that just going to church, just being baptized won't make you clean before God. You know, and it's not that serving isn't important. It's not that baptism isn't the right thing to do. It's that those things won't change your heart. You can do the right thing with a wrong heart. And God wants us to do the right thing with a right heart, okay? You could read Zechariah chapter three in tandem with this section of scripture as he talks to the the high priest and all. But if we're not walking in purity, that is if we're not leading a life that's set apart to God from the heart, then we begin to pollute, here's the concept, we begin to pollute everything around us. God goes beyond what we're doing and he's searching why we're doing it. And a little unchecked sin in our lives spreads like a virus. It can even begin to to stay with the same example, infect others. To the Galatians, Paul said it like this. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, again, that doesn't mean we walk around perfect, but it's always coming back to the heart, isn't it? And what God is getting around to here is that he really wants to bless. You know, the work that they're doing is commendable. It's commendable work. It's what God has told them to do. They're doing the right thing, you see. But he can't bless because their heart is amiss. Here's the point. God does not respond to simple outward obedience, okay? That's called legalism, isn't it? That's jumping through hoops. That's dotting I's. That's crossing T's. That's what the Pharisees were so successful at, you see, in Jesus' day. You can do what's right legally or morally and have no second thought toward honoring God inwardly. That is from the heart, you see. And God is always searching the heart. Again, we might say that unchecked sin will void our sacrifice and service before the Lord. God won't honor it. Just because they lived in the holy land, that didn't make their service holy. An unclean heart renders unclean service and unclean sacrifice. Are you following me? Okay. Verse 15, and now he says, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. Notice, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? 
As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, notice, but from this day I will bless you. From this day I will bless you. He says, remember when you were doing the work, but your grain harvest only yielded 50% of what you expected. You were doing all this work. Your, your grapes only yielded 40% of what you were anticipating, projecting. He says, that's because I was chastening you, yet you did not return to me. Question, do difficult days drive us to God? Not necessarily. Uh, sometimes we get mad at God instead. We, we dig in our heels against the chastening hand. You know, we begin to question God. But we love how the people have responded in this book. It's a rare kind of a glimmering gem throughout so many of the, of the prophets' you know, ministries because it was common that people would rebel against the rebuke of the prophets. Here, they respond appropriately. They take the message to heart. They have a change of heart. God sees their repentant hearts and promises that the harvest is on the way. As the psalmist has said, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Notice, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Notice, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. What's the take home? Sin will always hinder the work of God and rob us of the blessings of God. Okay? Now look at verse 20, guys. We're not far from finished. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile nations. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Here's this little remnant of people. Remember, they came back, like 50,000 or so of them, and they're in the middle of all of these global superpowers, and they're just, you know, it's quite an overwhelming task to establish yourself in the midst of all of this uh, uh, political upheaval and unrest uh, that's happening around you, and you're trying to build the temple, and there are enemies that are, are kind of uh, pressuring you and all of these things, and you're feeling like pawns in the big picture. But God reminds them, he says, hey, you and me, we make a majority. He says, God will shake heaven and earth, overthrow kingdoms and world powers. The idea, again, that if God be for you, who can be against you? Don't worry, don't fear. Remember, be strong, be strong, be strong, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. You're on the winning side. As we like to say, we don't really, as believers, we don't fight for victory, do we? We fight from victory. 
God has given you the victory in Jesus Christ. Now finally in verse 23, he says, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And uh, Karen, you can begin to make your way forward there, but the signet ring was a token of royal authority, right? In the same vein as a throne or a crown or you know, a scepter, these kinds of things. And God was telling Zerubbabel that, that he held a special place in his plan. And when you get to the genealogy of Jesus, who do you find in the history both of Mary and Joseph? Well, there he is. There's Zerubbabel right there. We might say that God had chosen Zerubbabel to leave his, that is God's, mark on this world. Listen. God has chosen you as well. Amen? Come on, aren't you grateful for that? God has chosen you. And he wants to use you to leave his mark on this world. He has a plan for you. Don't allow difficulties to derail you. Don't allow others who may be disgruntled to discourage you. Don't become indifferent and discontinue the work. Remain dedicated to God. Be strong and work for the Lord is with you and he will bless you. Forget that which is behind you. The best is yet to come. Praise God. Praise God. Let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you for your unrelenting love for us and that your word is always right on time. I pray, God, that you help us to honor you from the heart to be flexible, yielded, and looking forward. And God, I just want to pray for any who may be here, right here, right now, whether they're with us personally or on the internet, whatever the case may be, God, feeling discouraged, downtrodden, or maybe overwhelmed. We pray, God, for your restoration. We pray, God, for your rejuvenation and your healing touch. We thank you that you are the God of reconciliation. Lord, renew us to that first love relationship. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm just gonna say that, because I, listen, I don't know everybody here. I don't know if you know the Lord or maybe you just, listen, I just want you to know that going to church, jumping through religious hoops, they don't, that's not, it won't save you. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I was baptized when I was eight. Oh yeah, I, you know, I'm a Christian, I, I, uh, I, I read my Bible or I, I, I give to the church or you know, whatever the case may be. No, 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 no. We're called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself for us. Salvation is by grace through faith. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Not whoever dons the doors of a church. Not whoever was baptized when they were a youngster. No. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Is is that a word for you? I don't know. Perhaps it is. If it is, if God is knocking on the door of your heart, then right here, right now, I want to invite you not to harden your heart, but to open your heart and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's for you, again, doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you've been, maybe what you've done, I, I would just love to pray for you. And so if today is the day of salvation for you, I'm just going to ask you just to raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll acknowledge it. You can put it down. I see you, brother. Who else? Today is the day for you. Father, I just want to thank you for the life-changing power of your word. And that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God, give us ears to hear you today. Guys, we're going to take just a minute here, literally like just a minute, just to kind of meditate. Look, there's a difference between Eastern meditation and what the Bible Speaking of when it tells us, you know, I will meditate. When you're talking about Eastern meditation, you're talking about emptying yourself, you know. Some sort of pseudo-spirituality, some kind of ethereal weirdness. The Bible, meditation isn't an emptying, it's a filling. It's a focusing on the word of God. Letting it permeate from our head down into our heart. And so we want to take a moment and just meditate, just muse on, just think through perhaps something God was speaking to you today where it goes from, I don't know, illumination. How's it going to become application? Not only what have you learned, but what are you going to do about it? What's going to change in your life as a result of it? I want to give you just a moment of silence just to think through what God has ministered to you today. Just give the Lord your heart fresh. Just whatever it is that he's ministering to you, offer it back to him. God, have your way in me. And Lord, I just want to come in agreement with the prayers and the, the things that are being thought through and brought to you and maybe turned from or resolved in or strengthened by and we thank you for the the power that you've ordained in agreement God we want to be more like Jesus so have your way we pray
in us. For the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we rise?